opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallan. Sandy Greenberg is not your average blind individual. Sandy is the Board of Governors Chairman at John Hopkins University's Wilmer Eye Institute. He is also a United States Foreign Relations Council member and an American Academy of Arts and Sciences Fellow. Sandy also lives with his wife, Sue, in Washington, D.C., and is a loving husband, father, and grandfather. Sandy joins us to talk about his life and his new book called Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, How Daring Dreams and Unyielding Friendship Turned One Man's Blindness into an Extraordinary Vision for Life. Hi, Sandy. Hello, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, it's a, it's a fabulous day, but let's first learn about you. I understand that you're the chairman of the Board of Governors for John Hopkins University's Wilmer Eye Institute. Talk about that role. Uh, could I, before we do that, uh, mention a word about um, our friend Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her passing? Yes, she uh, just passed away she recently. She just passed, yeah, Friday night. And we were very good friends. And as you may know from the book, she wrote the foreword to my book. Um, beyond that, we were intimate friends for 40 years, and um, it's quite uh, quite an amazing life that she led. Her, you know, her courage, and which we all know about, her compassion and her surpassing intellect will continue, despite her passing, to inspire Sue and me as she has inspired all of us and lovers of justice throughout the world. God bless you, Ruth. Yeah, we'll miss her too. Our condolences here at Speaking Out for the Blind definitely go out to her and her family. I remember watching her talk on TV, and she was a nice lady with some funny and very memorable stories to tell. You're absolutely right, and I would like to dedicate this program to her, if it's okay with you, Brian. Sure. Okay, to answer your other question, your first question about the Wilmer Eye Institute, uh, I am proud and privileged to be chairman of the Board of Governors of the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. It's the largest clinical research, clinical and research enterprise in ophthalmology in the nation. The reason, and I've served as uh, on the board since 2010, the, the reason why I have a special place in my heart for Wilmer is that when I finally concluded, that is to say Sue and I, that we were going to announce a campaign to end blindness by 2020, the support that came from the Board of Governors and from Dr. Peter McDonald, its director, was simply incredible. Uh, we announced it on November 4th, 2011. And then that was, I announced that to the board. And then on October 18th, 2012, a year later, Sue and I announced on our website uh, that we were 
going to provide $3 million to that individual or team of researchers who has done most to end blindness across the globe for everyone and forevermore. $3 million, that's quite a lot of money, but it's all for the good cause. So I see how that works. But you're also a John Hopkins Medicine and the John Hopkins University Trustee Emeritus, yes. along with being the member of the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations and, and an American Academy of Arts and Sciences Fellow. Tell us about these roles. Well, my role at the Johns Hopkins University, I became a trustee in 1994 and have enjoyed serving on the board, on the boards since then. Uh, needless to say, the people from Johns Hopkins Medicine were extremely supportive of our efforts to end blindness. And while I learned a great deal from the board and made long, lifelong friends uh, as a result, what still impresses me and makes me grateful that the university and the School of Medicine and Hospital supported our effort to end blindness by 2020. Wonderful. Now you live in Washington. Yes, sir. You have your wife, you have yes. three kids, four grandkids. How yes. do you find that work-life balance? Do you have any special hobbies and fun things you do with your family? Well, unfortunately, my two boys and my four grandchildren live in New York, and my daughter lives in Sarasota, Florida. So, and particularly in the last six months because of COVID, it's been really difficult to, in fact, it's been impossible to get together. And so all the fun we used to have by going out and celebrating life has been diminished. My, my hobbies, well, Let's put it this way, uh, this notion of work balance, work life and balance is, I don't think, relevant to me because I don't see that what I'm doing is work. It is a commitment I made to the Lord in 1961, my eyes newly dead. I promised the Almighty that for the rest of my life, I would do everything I could to make sure that no one should go blind. And that's what I've been up to. Of course, I listen to music and read books and uh, celebrate when I can. My wife and I celebrate life every day together and have done so since we started dating in 10th grade. Hey, when it's something you love to do, it's not really work or a job. It's really actually something fun. Correct. Cool. We'll talk about some of your accomplishments in a little bit, but let's focus on that time when you became blind. You talk about this part of your life in your book. You yes. came from a poor Jewish family. You went to Columbia University as an undergraduate in 1961. You lost your vision that year. How did you lose your vision? In a word, it was the misdiagnosis of an ophthalmologist in Buffalo. I had been pitching 
in the seventh inning of a baseball game that previous summer. And suddenly my eyes became cloudy and very steamy. I almost hit the next batter. So I knew that something was seriously wrong. I stumbled off to the sideline. I laid down on the grass. My girlfriend, Sue, put my head on her lap and asked what was wrong. And I said, I don't know. I just couldn't see. But soon, a few hours later, the cloudiness and steam vanished. But nevertheless, I went to an ophthalmologist who told me that I had allergic conjunctivitis. He gave me certain eye drops, which were ineffective. So we decided we had to find another ophthalmologist, and we were pointed to a person who was allegedly the best ophthalmologist in Buffalo. Uh, and unfortunately, his misdiagnosis of an allergic conjunctivitis, which was the diagnosis I'd gotten from the first doctor, um, was absolutely incorrect. It was glaucoma. And month after month after month, he insisted that I put topical steroids into my eyes. And over time, months, they corrupted and poisoned my eyes so that by the end of the year and the beginning of next year, I couldn't see a thing. So you couldn't see a thing by the following year. But... Um... You, you originally had wanted to go to Harvard Law School, and you wanted to get into politics later on. But because of all the vision you lost, you were about to face this new grim reality. That reality was defined by either a cane or a guide dog. Yes. A super cautious life path. And yes. maybe just menial work. So you had yep. a choice. Either you were going to follow this reality and stay in Buffalo, or go back to Columbia and pursue your dreams. What did you decide to do, and how did you speak out to do that? Again, in a word, I chose life, and I had to speak out to my parents and tell them, despite their protestations, that I would be returning to the university. They were afraid that I would be killed, that I would be uh, walking into a bus, falling in a manhole, having bricks fall on my head. But my college roommate and my girlfriend, Sue, persuaded me that if I wanted to go back, I should go back. My college roommate, I didn't want to see anybody, but he flew in. And uh, we were intimate friends. And he came to Buffalo, New York, from New York, to tell me that I had to return. We talked, took a long walk down my street. And he kept repeating that. And I kept saying, I can't do it. Don't you see? I'm a dropout. I have no money, I have no eyes, I have no future. And he said, well, Sanford, you recall that before we ruined together, we had a pact that 
if one were in crisis, the other would come to his aid. So this is part of that solemn covenant. It's not that you have to go back to school, though I think you do, but I need you there. You're my best friend, aren't you? I said, yeah. He did not hear me talk about where I was at. He continued to philosophize and tell me of the Greeks that we had studied in our humanities class. And in the end, what finally persuaded me was the fact that he really needed me. And so with Sue's support, I returned to the university. You did, you got your degree, and you yep. also went to Harvard and Oxford University for your graduate studies. Yes, you sir. taught under David Rockefeller, Archibald Cox, Sir Arthur Goodhart, Samuel Huntington, they helped you go for your dreams in politics and law. Then finally, you came to the White House, and you worked under former president Lyndon B. Johnson. What did you do for him? That <clears throat> That's only half the question. What did he do for me? That's the real issue. He took me under his wing. He was very interested in the technological needs of our country, but also he believed that there was a technology gap between Western Europe and the United States. So he asked Bill Hewlett of Hewlett Packard, Donald Hornig, the president's advisor, and me to go meet with our friends in Europe and discuss it. And what happened one day, sitting in a room with a man named Stoltenberg, who I believe was the Minister of Technology for Germany, he said, we here train unskilled people to operate and maintain the most sophisticated technological weaponry. That sentence hung in the air. It resonated with me very deeply because I found it difficult to believe. But when I went back to Washington, I first spoke with Secretary Willard Wirtz, the Secretary of Labor, who was a great friend and supporter. And because he was interested in manpower training, he was excited and asked me to go continue to go forward. Bill Moyers, with whom I became friends from the first day we met in at the White House, he was 35, he was 32, I was 25. And I asked Bill and Secretary Wirtz, and in addition, another friend, Secretary of Agriculture, Orville Freeman, and the head of the FDA, Jim Goddard, to join me after we all left government and formed my first company, which was to manufacture computerized simulators. So that now, from my perspective, we could not only train unskilled people to operate and maintain sophisticated uh, technological weaponry, but also to make use of it in the commercial sector. 
So for example, to train some of these unskilled people to operate and maintain fossil fuel generators. And so the blessings I received by serving in the United States government changed my whole life. That's amazing. That's very, very amazing. You, you, you've accomplished quite a lot. You did work on those national technology needs with biomedical research and NASA research. You even did work to end blindness with End Blindness 2020, granting a prize of $3 million to the person or the group who made the greatest stride in ending the affliction of blindness. Now, I understand that's still going on, correct? Yes, sir. On December 14th of this year, the awards will be announced. I will tell you that we were supposed to have the award ceremony in the Supreme Court under the auspices of my dear departed friend, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but her passing and COVID made that impossible. But the answer to your question is yes, we are pursuing it vigorously. That's excellent. So um, as the Rural Healthcare Corporation's chairman, when you advise both the president and Congress on science and engineering policy matters, um, you were also that chairman of the Rural Healthcare Corporation. What did the corporation do? I understand they, were, they, they brought telemedicine to the U.S.'s rural areas. Yes, sir. That was a major breakthrough. Uh, Congress created Rural Healthcare Corporation in the Communications Act of 1997 and gave us a billion six to try and construct a structure by which the most impoverished citizens in the rural areas of our country could be given medical treatment. It was the beginning of telemedicine, and I have watched its benefits grow each year, but not until COVID did I see its full effect and the impact it has now for in healthcare. Amazing. You also founded the American Agenda. Uh, actually, I was a founding director together with three other people. It was The American Agenda was uh, created by Presidents Ford and Carter to try and provide bipartisan solutions, six, six of them, to the next president of the United States. And when we began our work, it was before the primaries. And so we did not know who would be the next president. Of course, it turned out to be President George H.W. Bush. And it consisted of 16 people, eight Republicans, eight Democrats. And it was one of the most engaging enterprises I was ever involved with, blessed by that period of time. So, Tell us a little bit about the book. How might our listeners buy the book and read it? Well, it's pretty simple. If you go on Amazon, 
or Barnes and Nobles, see it online and purchase it. Very, very easy. And Amazon in particular is quite efficient in letting the purchaser. Definitely easy. Yeah. What advice or guidance would you give our blind and visually impaired listeners out there who are listening to this right now? I think this is my personal take on that, that those of us who became blind or were born blind have a heavy burden in terms of being contributory to the society. And first and foremost, you have to recognize that even the bad things are good. Because even the bad things are a source of remembrance, a flavor of this life. Life is very precious, our lives, how we live them. You can't get it anyplace else. And once it's gone, it's gone. So the importance of appreciating every minute despite your circumstances is vital. And let me give you just one example that has inspired me. Beethoven, when he was 28, wrote a letter to his brothers saying that today I stood next to a man and several yards away was a person playing the flute. He, of course, could hear it and I could not. Another incident like that, I would have ended my life. But then I realized that I have much more to give to the world. And so, as he said, and this is the key sentence, and so I endured this wretched existence, truly wretched. And yet, here's a man who created the ode to joy, the ode to joy. So while people can live with very, very many handicaps of all sorts, each of us has music in us. And it's imperative that we share that music with civilization. And my music my passion is to make sure that no one else should ever go blind. And Sandy, you have and continue to live a great and inspirational life. And we hope that our listeners buy and read your new book to be further inspired to pursue their dreams. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Before we go, listeners, I welcome your comments on this program. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website. That's speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. My new email address is speakout at acbradio.org. My show archive is at acbradio.org slash speaking dash out dash four dash dash blind. Please note that there is a link located at the top of the page and below the heading that says Home Speaking Out for the Blind, where you can subscribe to the podcast feed and listen to Speaking Out for the Blind shows. 
ranging from episode 94 to the present. You may also access the podcast feed at speaking-out-4-shy-blind.pinecast.co. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out. Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. Remember BPI? Oh yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB. Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention. Guess what they're up to now? Do tell. Their own show. It's called Pride Connection. That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community? This is a show for everyone. Actually, non-LGBT and non-disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. Everyone is welcome. So what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection? Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness to LGBT education, technology to advocacy. So when will Pride Connection take place? Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect and learn while having fun. Pride Connection on On ACB ACB Radio Radio Mainstream. This is Cindy Van Winkle, Membership Services Coordinator. If you are not already part of the ACB family, you can join us by going to acb.org or call us at 612-332-3242 and we'll help you join our community. You're listening to ACB Radio Mainstream. Learn more about us at our website, www.acbradio.org. Thank you.